My name is Paul Tizard. I'm a fear of flying coach. I've been doing this now for about 25 years. I set up the original Flying Without Fear program after writing to Sir Richard uh, whilst I was working for them as a customer service trainer at the time. And I ran the program from 96 through to 2019. And in that time, we helped 30,000 normal people just like you to get over their fear of flying. I'd like to introduce my colleague and someone I've been working with quite a few years. This is Captain Steve Ball. Steve, tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, I'm Steve. Uh, I've been an airline pilot for 32 years now. Um, I started uh, when I was 21, I think. I flew for a, a small airline called Monarch Airlines for, for seven years. You've probably heard of them. And one of the original charter airlines in the UK. And for 25 years now, I've been with Virgin Atlantic. Yes, I fly the routes with Virgin Atlantic. Uh, we do long haul and ultra long haul routes. And as well as my job as flying, I'm also an instructor and an examiner for the airline. So you're uh, a big shot. <laughs> you're an experienced guy. So, yeah, so you for those. Great. Yeah, well, no. you know, it's important to sort of clarify. So a training captain is somebody, and forgive me for if you know this already, but a training captain is somebody who's trusted to check and train up other captains. So they have to be at the top of their game. And it involves taking them in the simulator, running them through all the drills, all the things that every pilot should have to do, but also with the extra leadership part that a captain is expected to deliver. And then also flying online with them so uh, actually up in the air if you remember flying and sitting with them monitoring them giving them feedback and training and making sure that this person sort of fit for purpose so by the time that somebody becomes even liable or likely to become a captain in an airline like virgin or british airways they have to have done thousands of thousands of hours have lots of experience already so because you want somebody that's seen a lot of flying and had a lot of experience so that they can bring that sort of leadership element. Both pilots are equally competent in terms of flying. And sometimes some of the first officers you'll get would have, might have done 20 years in the military before they came over as a newbie into a commercial airline. So they're not, it's not for lack of experience, but it's about the leadership element. And that's what Steve's heavily involved in. So it's a very reassuring thing. I think a lot of people don't realize about pilots. So we have 10 questions that we're going to go through today. And we had a good think about this because over the well, like 25 years that have been doing this and all those humans that we've helped, there are some questions which come up time and time again. So I've divided it up roughly into six for Steve and four for me. Uh, so the question is going to be things like, what is turbulence? Is it dangerous? Why should I trust pilots or airlines? That's a good question. It comes up a lot. Uh, which airlines are the safest to fly with? A lot of people often ask that. What's in place to guard against things like terrorism or terrorist threats? What happens if the engines stop working, which is quite a specific thing? And then how safe is it to fly in terms of air quality, COVID, etc.? And, and Steve is actually flying at the moment, so you'll be able to tell what it's, what's in place right now to protect people. The questions that I've got will be broadly around these four areas. So what causes the fear of flying? Why have I got a fear of flying? And uh, why can't I relax on a flight? Why don't I like flying? So why do I feel closed in? I don't like turbulence, all that, the whole experience side of it. And then my last question will be, what is the best way to beat a fear of flying? That'll give you some idea of 
some of the questions that we're going to cover. I'm going to hand over now to Steve to answer the first question. In approximately about five minutes, what is turbulence and is it dangerous? Turbulence, yes, I think on the courses that we do is probably the, one of the, the biggest topics. Um, so turbulence, to start off with, it's uncomfortable, without a doubt, uncomfortable for any human being, but it's not dangerous. And that's the, the thing that we, we emphasise. So what is turbulence without going into aerodynamics and how aeroplanes fly on this particular uh, session? But suffice to say that um, aeroplanes, a wing of an aeroplane, needs lift. It needs air. Okay, So air is always present around the aeroplane and it's air over the wings that provide lift. So if you can imagine uh, driving your car on a cobbled street, so you know, in fact, you don't actually need to be on a cobbled street. It's just the roads of the UK now. <laughs> with potholes galore and so every time you're driving your car and you can feel how rough the roads are this is a good analogy for you uh, to consider what turbulence is so when it's nice smooth flying conditions and the aeroplane is not experiencing disturbed air over the wings so if you imagine that turbulence now is just air that's being disturbed over the nice smooth wings of the aeroplane now, what causes the disturbance? Now, there's a few things that cause air to be rough. If you can imagine when two rivers meet in the middle, you get these eddy currents there. So that's when winds meet. And that's going to cause rough air. One of the biggest things, when do we all go on holiday? In the summertime. So when you see those nice blue skies with big, white, fluffy clouds, well, those big, white, fluffy clouds are caused by hot air rising off the earth and then cooling. And so if you imagine that the air is going up in the cloud, then it cools and goes back down. And so every time you fly through a cloud, the air inside a cloud is going up and down like this. So if you imagine the aeroplane is flying along and you go through the cloud, what's going to happen is the air over the wings is disturbed. So that's turbulence. We also have these things called jet streams, a phenomena. Google is your friend, but the jet stream exists uh, on Earth. In the Northern Hemisphere, they go from west to east and in the southern hemisphere it's reversed and these are huge columns of air thousands of miles long thousands of feet deep and they go up to about 250 miles an hour so you can imagine sometimes you know when we cross those or in them they can be smooth as a mill pond sometimes and sometimes they can be rough and a lot of you always ask you know why are flight times shorter coming from america and longer going up well that's the reason because the jet streams go from west to east when we go to america we're flying into headwinds so we try and avoid those but in reverse when we come home from america these jet streams we we go looking for them now they might be rough but we actually still go looking for them because one it reduces the flight time so therefore reduces the amount of fuel we co we carry and therefore obviously reduces your cost of your ticket so people think we're crazy when we actually go looking for these jet streams but we do because we know they're not dangerous but sometimes they can be uncomfortable. So just to give you some example, when we take off, um, and there's aspects of takeoff that people don't like, but in relation to turbulence. So when we take off out of airports, we obviously have to turn left, turn right, whichever way it you know, may be. And when we do, we actually turn the aeroplane 30 degrees of bank. When we turn left or turn right uh, after takeoff, when we leave airports, air traffic control gives directions. So we use 30 degrees of bank either side. 
But when we're in turbulence, uh, next time you experience turbulence, if you look out of the window, so the window is your friend and looking at the horizon. So when we're in turbulence, the aeroplane is just doing this. And that's where the air over the wings, okay, is disturbed. Normally it's a nice smooth flow and it's just like those cold streets. So from outside, okay, but inside to you, it feels like this, doesn't it? And that's because there's one really big thing is, um, and again, Paul and I will cover it in another session, but what we do inside an aeroplane is we take away one of your senses, which is obviously your sight. And by that, I mean, you can't see forwards, okay, inside the cabin. You can see outside the windows, left and right, but that's not how our brain works, okay? So by taking away your forward sight, what happens is your hairs in your inner ears, there's a biological term for it, they are our balance machines, okay? And they go into hypersensitive mode when we take away one of our senses, in this case, sight. So when we get small ripples like this, inside the cabin to you, okay, it really feels really quite uncomfortable. One of the worst things you can ever do on a roller coaster, if you're scared, is to close your eyes. You are now enhancing that ride or the fear by a hundred times. So next time you're in an aeroplane, if you just look out of the window during turbulence, you won't see this you won't see the horizon disappearing. All you'll see is the horizon just jiggling up and down. And another big question that people always ask is, what is an air pocket and why do they exist? Well, air pockets don't exist because air cannot disappear. And it's just this term that's been used for years and misquoted again that you, you know, everyone says, oh, we dropped thousands of feet in that. It's not possible. Wings of an airplane will not allow you to drop, okay? What it is, it's actually porpoising. So we're just literally just moving through the sky like that during rough air, during turbulence. So just like a dolphin is porpoising like that, we're never losing height. We're never dropping at all. We're going along at 600 miles an hour. But this sensation of this porpoising when the air is rough over the wings to you feels really, really uncomfortable. So what I want to emphasize is that's all it is. It's just uncomfortable. It's cobbled streets in your car, but it's not dangerous. That's excellent. I can't believe you had an aircraft ready. I'm impressed. I didn't buy this, honestly, I got given it. Promise, mm, yeah. I'm not a plane spotter. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with you are. Okay, so <laughs> thank you for that. You so that's a, that's a good one. Uh, so yeah. the next question then is why should I trust, why should I trust you? Why should I trust airlines? That's yeah, a good question. The amount of uh, work that goes into to get into the front of an airline is, is, is years and years of um, exams and years of testing and assessments. So there's a lot of time and effort put in by uh, each pilot. There is a few ways that you can become an airline pilot. One is to be sponsored by an airline. Um, uh, that's probably 50% of, of most pilots in the world with it. Uh, the other way is through the military. A huge amount of um, pilots come from the military. Obviously, they get their training in the Air Force. Then they have to convert their licenses from military licenses to commercial licenses. And then, of course, the other way is you can take um, a huge bank loan out. It's probably in the region of about £130,000 now to get uh, a basic license. But then, of course, you then got to go and seek employment afterwards and convince an airline to, to take you on. And once you get your license, that's obviously at flying a school, you do lots of basic flying in light aeroplanes and two-seater aeroplanes, four-seater aeroplanes, 
huge amounts of technical exams. And that takes about 18 months. When you finish that, obviously, you're looking for your, your first, uh, what's called a type conversion onto an airliner. So that takes about six months. So if you start, most pilots will start on a short haul airplane, which is probably a, an Airbus A320 or Boeing 737 nowadays. And that takes about six months. And then again, there's endless technical uh, exams to sit. And then there's a huge amount of simulator to go through. And at the end of all of that, you get an examination. And it's two days in the simulator of being thrown every single fault that's uh, possible to be given to the aeroplane. So by that, I mean, you lose hydraulics, you'll have smoke, you'll have fire, you'll lose engines at the most critical stage of flight. We have anything you like, electrical failures, pressurization failures, anything that the aeroplane was built to withstand. And for two days, you have to go through that and pass it. Once you get past that and you get released onto the line, as it were, flying with passengers, you're then sitting with a training captain. Eve, I thought I'd interrupt. I'm going to ask the question oh. that people are thinking. Oh, okay. go on. Yeah. So what, what happens if you don't pass all those horrible oh, okay. tests you've just, what would you no, do? absolutely. God, you talk about... I know someone's yet. thinking it, so I might as well ask it, you know. No, exactly. Yeah. And, and does it happen? Yes, it does. Um, it's not very common, but it does. And if somebody fails an assessment, then a period of retraining happens. So um, you're officially grounded at this point, and then you're back into the simulator and you'll go through a whole, you know, whether however many sessions it will require to retrain you up to the required standard. And then once you've achieved that required standard, you will then sit another two-day um, assessment. I hope that answers that. Like I was saying, you, you get released onto the line with passengers. So you're flying live now. And uh, you sit with the training captain, uh, someone like myself or, or anyone else who's qualified as an instruction examiner. And then you go through a series of uh, flights and depending on which airline you fly for and how many sectors that they require you to be trained. And then you go on to a period of assessment. So there's a period of training and then you're still flying and now you're being assessed. And then ultimately it leads to what's called a crew line check. And then you will sit with a, a, another line um, pilot and the examiner will now sit on the jump seat behind you and you will operate as a crew. And ultimately you're going to get your ticket to be released onto the line. That's just the flying side of it. Every six months, we then go back into the simulator for those two days that I told you about. So our whole career, um, in my case, for the last 32 years and every six months of my career, um, I have to be assessed as well as being an instructor and examiner. That's no different. I also have to go under and um, check every six months and you have to pass it. Every year on the line, when I told you about two pilots sit together and an examiner sits on the jump seat, every year you have to do one of those. Every year you have to go back into the, the classroom and sit a technical exam, a refresher. Uh, every year we have to sit an aviation medical, which um, again, if you Google it, you'll understand what we go through for um, for lots and lots of testing. And again, we have to pass that. And every year also, as well as our technical refresher, we have to go through what safety and emergency procedures, um, which basically is what the cabin crew do. And they have a huge amount of knowledge in the cabin and all primarily for safety. And we also have to sit in on one of those uh, every year. So it's just a constant, constant assessment 
Don't it's a wonderful it career. It's very rewarding, but it's just <laughs> constantly being assessed. Yeah, and, and I think the interesting thing for me, which a lot of people don't realise, is that you know, you're being fundamentally tested every six months or more frequently. Can you mm. do your job? And I wonder how we would fare in any of our jobs out in the world if every six months we were put through, you know, so as a facilitator or as a coach, I would have this, the equivalent would be I'd go into a classroom for two days and they'd throw every difficult participant at me and I'd have to deal with it really well, remaining calm, continue to communicate clearly. And that, that's nothing compared to sort of what you have to go through. So I think it's quite reassuring for people to think that's the sort of, that's all pilots. It's not just Virgin, that's all pilots. So No, no, absolutely. Right, question three, my friend. All we right. are moving on to, ah, careful, which airlines are the safest to fly with? Take um, the time, you obviously have your drink. Yeah, it's all right, yeah, no rush. Yeah. So which airlines are there? So the good news about, just like pilots are uh, assessed and regulated, so airlines are as well, and each airline. So if I start in the United Kingdom, um, so each airline is responsible to the United Kingdom CAA, the Civil Aviation Authority, okay? So our CAA govern every single airline and each airline is under scrutiny also during the year. And there's uh, a couple of times a year where the CAA will go to each airline and they will sit with the authorities of the airline in each different department from the flying side to the safety side to the running of the flight operations every single aspect of it is assessed. And one of the biggest things, of course, just like flying is, is the engineering aspect. And so our maintenance schedule of any airline in the UK is also under the regulatory eye of the UK CAA. So does this apply to every other country? Yes, it does. One of the questions, of course, is people say, well, is there a difference around the world? So if to sum up in a perfect way, so every airline in the UK is responsible, is, is responsible to the UK CA and the CA set a standard and it must be achieved. Every airline that flies into the UK is also comes under our regulatory, regulatory um, procedures. So they must also pass that standard. Have airlines been refused to travel into the UK before? Yes, they have over the years. We're going back some years, but some airlines don't actually come up to that standard. Now, each country has their own standards and of course, they're extremely high in each, each country. United States, for example, the Federal Aviation, the FAA, in the Far East, they have their own regulatory affairs, and each airline must satisfy those, those regulatory standards. And they're constantly checked, just like pilots. So it gives you some um, confidence that whichever airspace you're flying in, that particular airline is responsible for maintaining the standards that are required. And just like any UK airline flying to other countries, we must satisfy their standards as well. Awesome, thanks, Steve, that's good. Good answer to that, yeah. Uh, it's a question that's come up, I mean, thousands thousands of times over the years I've heard that one. Who do I trust, who do I trust? There are websites out there that will say, you, you know, airline ratings, for example, .com, yeah. we'll talk about this. But I think that you have to remember this main message is that if it's in your airspace, it's safe. Absolutely. So you'll anywhere you're going to fly, uh, I'd get on. I, and I've got on some airlines which I've I've never even heard of. But if they're in the UK or they're in the developed world, commercial aviation, no problems at all. Yeah. So, question four. 
Well, already. What is in place to guard against terrorism and that type of thing? This is a question that comes up a lot, a lot, a lot. Yeah, it does. I have to say, as a as a, any frontline staff in in airlines, we're we're not we're not obviously involved in that. We have our own procedures uh, on the aeroplane, which are secret, but we get trained in those. One of those assessments that I talked about, we are regularly checked on as well in our in our uh, annual assessment. The cabin crew are trained within an amazing level of ability to train with those sorts of things and they go on uh, all sorts of exercises to attain that level. Now the government itself in each country has a, an assessment level just like the UK has its own threat level and we also have threat levels for aviation as well and there is a huge amount uh, going on behind the scenes. It's why well that's how we all get to sleep soundly at night time because what's going on uh, behind the scenes is is immeasurable and we won't actually ever know uh, how much is going on behind because obviously it needs to to be kept secret but if you've ever seen that program spooks on tv which i'm a big fan of and i love all that that stuff that goes on behind the scenes it's exactly the same in the aviation world and there's a huge amount of safeguarding against the threat of of any terrorism and as you know a lot of people that don't actually think about how good it is uh, are the people that possibly would complain at an airport now. Do you remember years ago, it was probably about half an hour, you used to rock up to a flight and check your bag in and then go off for a drink and get on the aeroplane. I missed that too. I was, I was flying long before 9-11, which changed the face of aviation forever. But now, what do you have to be there three hours before a flight? And yeah, it, it's, it's a pain in the ass, but it's there for a good reason. And unfortunately, there are people that do give the security people a hard time at the airports. And, you know, if they only stopped and thought exactly why they're being checked every inch of your body, then there's a really good reason. And that allows us to transport you safely from A to B and you can enjoy yourself. Yeah, I think it's, it is massively reassuring. And they are there. You know, they always used to be a phrase to say, time to spare, go by air. <laughs> that's right yeah, that's true i'm glad you're laughing at it. i didn't think it was that funny <laughs> uh, but it is that you know you've you've got to accept the fact that it is a bit of a pain now and it's been like that for a good reason that so you are going to get a, if you're lucky you'll get a little bit of a pat down which is nice <laughs> to start your flight but you are going to get checked over and you're going to be pulled to side it's all this random there's also other procedures going on so we used to talk about is over and covert security lots that we don't know about and that's good. It's all to the good, you know, bit of a pain, but it's all good. So let me go on. What happens if the engines stop working? Whoa, good one. That's a very popular question on our Love Fly uh, courses that we do. So first of all, Google is your friend once again. Now, if you look at the, um, the building of an engine and just watch when they put an engine through its paces in order for it to end up on the wing of an airliner. It's absolutely fabulous. Whether it's Rolls-Royce, General Electric, Pratt Money, just it doesn't matter. And you watch what they do in the building of these engines and then they have to literally try and destroy them. And by that, so they put them up to full speed and then they fire frozen chickens. Not that you get many frozen chickens up in the sky these days. Out of a cannon, they catapult frozen chickens at the blades of, a, of an engine. 
and it has to withstand a certain amount of damage in the casing that has to withstand certain pressures, destruction of blades, all sorts of things. So please Google the, the test beds of those, those engines. So suffice to say, when they leave the engineering factory and end up on the wing of an aeroplane, it is years later, just like the building of an aeroplane. Aeroplanes don't just get built overnight. It takes years before they actually end up in service. So engines nowadays are 99.99999% reliable. And this is why nowadays, you remember in the old days, we used to have aeroplanes with, with four engines. It's not, it's not required anymore. The engines are so reliable and so efficient now that in fact, there probably would never another four engine aeroplane built. And so we fly with two engines now. So can we fly with one engine? So part of our assessment as, as pilots in our training every six months is we lose engines at the most critical point of flight. What's the most critical point of flight? It's on takeoff, of course. And literally just as you're taking off, we get engine failures, engine fires, engines destroyed, um, whatever it be. And we have to safely control the aeroplane, fly away safely and get the aeroplane under control. And of course, we'll land back and um, get back on the ground. Now, can we lose both engines is what you're desperately asking me to get onto. So has everyone heard of a glider? I'm sure you have. So these amazing things. Um, obviously you need to get into the air first and a tug takes a glider into the air. So that's why we don't need engines. We obviously need engines to take you from A to B, which may be thousands and thousands of miles away. But suffice to say, if we lost both engines, so if we were up, say, at 37,000 feet, the typical cruising altitude, and we lost both engines, you're asking yourself, aren't you, does the aeroplane do that? That's what you're asking, isn't it? Yes, I know you are. Or does it do that? <laughs> no, it doesn't. The aeroplane becomes just a huge glider. So, for example, if we lost both engines over, say, Manchester at 37,000 feet, we'd land safely in Birmingham or London 200 plus miles away. We would just glide down and then we're trained to land safely by, by gliding. Now, would we carry on as far as 200 miles? No, because obviously we would look for the, the nearest airfield from Manchester, which would be somewhere like East Midlands or something like that. But suffice to say that you just become a huge glider. Remember, we're trained to control any engine failure. And yes, they become a glider. But remember, engines are so 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 reliable now that the chance of it and i don't know what it is i think it's um, playing the lottery twice and then winning it two weeks in a row with the same numbers or something so there we go i can't work out what that years. means mathematically but thank you well i know it's uh, a big statistic but in 32 years if you'd like to know i have not had an engine failure in 32 years so and that gives you some idea when i started in the early 90s from years ago in the 50s and 60s when you probably used to read and hear about the engine failures that happened well that was the development side of anything in aviation when the first jets sort of started in the 50s and it's amazing the technology that exists today and and we're all obviously as a nation very very lucky to have the technology that's around today brilliant steve so we're at number five got one more to go and then we're going to cover some of the ones which are more psychological based i guess you could actually it's quite actually hard to separate the two of them, if I'm honest, but we are going to for the sake of illustration today. So 
And make a link if you do or you are intrigued by the engine question. If you go to our YouTube channel, which is called something like Love Fly Fear of Flying Help, there is a couple of videos on there. And in there is one around the engines, which came from a brother-in-law who works at Rolls-Royce. And he shared some clips about some of the, the testing and the safety that goes into it. It is mind-blowing. Stephen, <laughs> last question. So how safe is it to fly now with all the COVID stuff going on, you know, in terms of air quality, things like that? I mean, you are flying at the moment, so perhaps you could just sure. give us a few minutes on what happens to you. And it'll need to be just a few minutes to make sure we can yeah, keep yeah. it in our no, no. span. Absolutely. Yes, it's it's absolutely as safe as it always was. The the difference to um, air crew now we get tested before every single flight now for for COVID, uh, as do passengers now to get on board the aeroplane. And um, you have to wear a mask inside the aeroplane. I won't lie to you; it's very very quiet on the aeroplanes. There's there's very few passengers. Some destinations are are, are actually busy. But yeah, the air quality remains exactly the same. So if, you, if you've ever heard about air quality in, in Kevin, so the, the more modern airliners, and there's always amazing new ways of how they filter air through the cabin now. But yes, the, the air in the cabin gets refreshed all the time, goes back through filters, recirculation fans, draw the air out of the cabin, goes through filters, and then more fresh air comes into the cabin, et cetera. And it's just an ongoing process like that. But with regards to, to COVID, it, it actually makes makes no difference. It's the same as you, you know, crossing the street, going into a, a supermarket. It's, uh, you know, the air quality in the air is absolutely fine and it won't make any difference. The fact you have to wear a mask, especially if you're doing long haul, it's pretty uncomfortable. But until the world authorities advise us that, that we can't, sorry, that we have to uh, wear the mask continuously, then, then so be it. But that will always come good one day but yes rest assured it's actually a really nice especially i have to say if you do have um, a fear of flying and you're anxious about it it's actually a really good time for you to fly now and by that i mean um it's always a good time for you to fly but by by doing it now you'll find airports extremely quiet so there's less stress for you going through the security getting on an airplane if you find it claustrophobic and you don't like lots of passengers around you then there's very, very few passengers on board at the minute. So it's actually, if you'd like to put um, yourself to the test after going on one of Paul's amazing courses, then do it. It's a really good time for you to actually have the freedom, if you like, of an aeroplane, and you'll get a one-to-one -one sort of special service. There we go. I yeah. promise you that. Well, that's good. If you, uh, thank you for that, Steve. So if you want to know more about that the air quality side of things i did write a blog about it but the, the easiest place to go to if you google iata i-a-t-a there's loads and loads of articles there it's a regulatory body that advises the world's airlines and they've there's loads and loads of little videos and articles and research that they've done around the air quality and stuff so if you want to reassure yourself that's where I would look. So go IATA and then look for the articles. Just search COVID or air quality. There's tons of stuff for you to read and satisfy that sort of logical side of your brain. Okay, I'm going to move now into some psychological type questions, but they're obviously going to touch on some of the stuff that you've covered, Steve. But first of all, the first question that comes up is why have I got a fear of flying? What's caused it? Where's it come from? So let me tell you this. First things first, you were not born with it. 
I know that seems really obvious to say, but you weren't. So you've learned it at some point. There are lots of trigger points that we know. And that for as many people that there are listening and for the many thousands that we've helped in the past, you all have your individual reason for that fear starting. The quite common ones can be becoming a parent. But if I had to say the number one reason, it would probably be that, that I became a parent. The number two, very closely behind it, is I had a bad flight which is an interesting comment in itself because it's all about perception because what is a bad flight? You know, so to be brutally honest, did it land? Yes. Did the number of takeoffs equal the number of landings? Yes. And I'm not being flippant. I'm meaning like a flight is a flight. So it's neither bad, good or anything. It's just a flight. Some people will say, oh, I loved it. There's loads of turbulence. It rocked me off to sleep. If you can imagine such a thing. Some people just are like, bring it on, because they love turbulence. You know, they have no problems with it at all. They have a different mindset. Others, it can be very light turbulence, and they'll still say it was an awful flight because their perception of it was what it was. So you've got this, I've become a parent, so I've got this sort of awareness of mortality, and I've got this extra responsibility now, and I don't want to pass it on to my kids, which then puts us under this performance pressure to try and be perfect which is, you know, anyone who's a parent would know that's impossible anyway. But we have this thing then, I've got to hold it together for my kids. And the trouble with that is, is that kids are like little radars and they pick up everything. You know, they don't miss a thing like that. So the best thing you can do is sort out your own fear so that you don't pass it on to them. Because then it becomes the gift that keeps on giving, doesn't it? It's the gift for life of being able to travel without the fear. I always say to parents, if you've got this, don't beat yourself up. It's never too late to do something about it. So sum up the millions of reasons why you can get the fear. It tends to be triggered by something. I've just given you a couple of common examples, but it's never too late to do something about it because you weren't born with it. So that's my first question answered. Second one. Why can't I relax on the flight? Why can't I relax on the flight? I don't enjoy flying. I don't like turbulence. Why can't I relax? One of the things I'll say about this is that it's not the actual main question that comes up, but it's a, I kind of summarized it up. People who are scared of flying don't relax on flights because they're on high alert. And so you're on high alert just because if you're not on high alert, then well, anything could happen. So you can't relax. And you're monitoring every single movement. You're studying the cabin crew and you're watching their faces because you've learned at some point, well, if the cabin crew look OK, then, you know, I'm probably going to be safe. So let me offer you a few things about this. So first of all, you need to work on this. And this is I want to offer you this. So going in logically, first of all, thinking about, well, who do I trust? I'm not in control of the flight. You are processed. I don't like the fact that I get processed when I fly, but that's the way it is. But who am I handing over my trust to? People like Captain Steve and his colleagues. And they are awesome. So I, I dare you to challenge you to find a group that you could trust more than people like Steve and the cabin crew. Because if you could see the training and the retraining that pilots and cabin crew go through on every airline, you would be gobsmacked. So sometimes we do have to submit ourselves to a process and flying is like that, just as it's going for an operation, just as it's going to the dentist, or anything but it doesn't mean you have to like it so trusting somebody and handing over to them means that little bit by little bit you can start to let go of that need to control 
because you can't control it. The flight's going to happen. It's going to take off. It's going to land, regardless what you think about it. And it doesn't say anywhere on your ticket that you have to love flying. Just because we do doesn't mean that you do. For some people, it's a kind of like a sliding scale. So some will say, you know, I'm okay with it. I've helped lots of people in the past who've been freaking out, even the thought of booking a holiday and have avoided it for years and years and years. And it's a gradual process. The thing about beating a fear of flying, it is a process and it goes at the speed that you're prepared to go at. You don't have to love flying. You can learn to like it. You can learn to withstand it. There's lots of strategies that you can do to sort of, if you're on a long flight, is to chunk it up. So think in hour chunks, and then you're only managing that bit. So there's always, there's always a pattern to every flight and learning the stages of the flight. And you can get one of our previous podcasts, you'll have that. We talk about, me and Steve talk about literally what happens at each stage. Once you get that in your head, then you become, you can drill it. You know, it's going to happen. It's almost like tick, next bit, tick. And that's massively helpful to the logical brain. I don't like enclosed spaces. Why do they have to shut the door? Will the door open? So there's stuff around being enclosed spaces, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to offer another view on this. Not everybody who's claustrophobic on an aircraft is claustrophobic in other places. I'll say that again. Not everybody's claustrophobic on an aircraft. That feels the same in other places. Some do, some don't. Some people who are claustrophobic are not if they get to get on first or if they get to sit at the front of a zone or if they get to sit in an aisle seat or if they get to sit in a business seat. But what is this suggesting? The real fear is the fear of enclosed spaces. And of course, once they shut that door, you are in there, which is good because you don't want the door open really. Uh, but you're in a contained, a properly contained hospitality area. So it's been set to make it comfortable for us as humans. We've got plenty of air. The air's changed every couple of minutes. Uh, you've got space. You've got food. You've got everything you need. It's a flying hotel, but your m- brain can tell you other stuff about it. So you might be thinking, I feel very closed in, but that is your perception of the situation because many people when they walk onto an aircraft will say to me oh it's a lot bigger than I expected or it's smaller than I expected and we're looking at the same thing so perception is a big deal when it comes to enclosed spaces so all I'm asking to do is to be psychologically flexible this idea here and maybe think to yourself what are the rules that I'm setting for myself around feeling enclosed because they are not the same for everybody and if you just do that, what that does is start to poke at the fear a bit and go, come on a second, what am I telling myself about this particular scenario that's different to the person that sat next to me? And this gives us space to then examine it and think, Mikey, I need to do something about this, which brings you on to my fourth and last question. What's the best way to be at fear of flying? Well, obviously, I'm going to say that come on one of our courses, you know, but I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say do something. So the fact that you're here right now is a massive deal because a lot of people who have fear of flying will move away from the very thing that they're scared of. So moving towards something, and even though you'll feel some internal resistance, and we know this to be true, that even though a part of you wants to beat the fear, there is a part of you that wants to hold on to it. So the best way to get rid of a fear of flying is keep moving forward, especially when you feel resistance in yourself. So we've had people 
on my previous incarnation when I was running the Virgin courses that would strongly react to something one of the pilots would say because it didn't match their internal belief system about what flying is. And sometimes if we're lucky, they would verbalize it and go, that's not true. And then that's great because we know what's going on. But all of us do it. The best thing I can suggest is keep going. It doesn't matter whether you do lots of freebie stuff like this, whether you come on our course that we've, we've got coming up or whether you go and read books, just keep going. And when you notice the resistance, this is good. Because the, what a lot of people do when they get that resistance with other fears is they just, oh, it can't be this. Obviously, I'm not meant to fly. I'm just, I guess I'm just one of those people that's just never going to love flying. But reality is you weren't born with it. So the trick is give yourself permission to keep moving forwards. If you meet resistance, that's a sign that it, you know it matters and, you're, and the work is being done then. If you're moving towards it and you're like, fine, 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 you're not actually facing the fear. So facing the fear means overcoming that resistance. I promise you on the other side is a great place. And the other thing I'll say about flying, it's means to an end, isn't it? We all, I've often said that it's a journey. It gets you from A to B. It's just a very safe way of doing it. It doesn't say anywhere you have to love it. Even though we've called the company Love Fly, that isn't going to be an experience that's going to be shared for everybody. Just to give you a link in and a bit, share a bit of information with you, we do have some courses coming up in the next few months. We've got one a month, April, May and June. 49 quid, half day. You'll get me, Steve, psychotherapist, wing crew, we're going to chuck loads and loads of stuff at you to give you all that you need. And um, particularly at the moment, we want to help people to gear up. So selfishly, we love aviation and we want it to get back to where it was. And it's been decimated as an industry. And we want to really help do our bit to help people to now, as they start to think about traveling again, if they're not at the moment, how can we help them with the fear of flying? We absolutely know that fear of flying has not gone away and it does affect one in five people. So that's roughly 12. If you're in the UK, it's about 12 million people. There's a lot of humans that have some level of fear. The COVID has not helped. So we know that people will be thinking about this. So we want to give people everything they need. So if you are interested in that, lovefly.co.uk, have a look on the shop page. There's a few courses there. If you had one top tip or one message to say why people should feel safe flying, what would your overarching message be? Yeah, it's probably the one that you know and I use all the time. So I'm someone who, anyone who knows me will know I say this a lot. So I love life uh, to the full. And the most, without doubt, my favourite destination in the world is home. And I wouldn't jeopardise that for any anything whatsoever. So that's my favourite destination. I get to fly around the world, which is amazing. It's so rewarding. I get to see all the beautiful places in the world that you see on TV and wish that you go there. So I would just wholeheartedly say, I hope that you can overcome uh, your fears and get to that stage and enjoy the world. But by me saying that my favorite destination in the world is home is that because I wouldn't jeopardize that, then I wouldn't do anything that's unsafe. And I've been doing it for 32 years now. And it is still the most incredible, safest way to travel. It's safer than crossing the road um, it's safer than driving a car. There's loads of statistics on um, on the internet. You can read about all that that's related to. But like I say, in the safest way to travel, 
and every single pilot is the same. They all want to go home at the end of the of the day, their shift, and just have comfort that you're in very, very good hands. Right. Thanks, Steve. So just to sort of finish off then, if anybody needs some further help, you've got the, the Love Fly Overcome Fear of Flying face group, Facebook group, which is free. We're going to put these sort of things in there all the time. There's the podcast. We are... We'll put in something every week, which is linked to Fear of Flying, which is also called Love Fly, Fear of Flying. If you want the, if you've got on the iPhone, we've got an app, which is called Love Fly, Fear of Flying. And it's got a free audio version of the book that I wrote, uh, which includes a relaxation session at the end, which is linked to Fear of Flying. And there's a few other bits and bobs on there, like a fear, a fear questionnaire as well to do. So that's the app. Uh, what else? If you want to ask any questions specifically of one of the team, just write us an email, team at lovefly.co.uk. So send us through that and we'll answer that. You can also put it into the Facebook group as well and we'll get round to those comments and answer them specifically. I can never say that word. And just want to say thanks to my partner in crime, Captain Steve Bull, for his time and wisdom today. And hopefully we'll catch you on one of our future programs coming up in April, May and June. And until then, take care.